0: One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising.
1: You've downloaded the NewsHour Extra podcast. This is Owen Bennett-Jones, and we've got an hour today on the subject of President Trump's first 100 days in foreign policy. And uh, Piers Lynch, I should say, producer of the programme over the last how many months?
2: Eighteen months, something.
1: Is it like really, yeah, no, yeah. yeah, right. Eighty uh, episodes. Eighty episodes is uh, moving on, and you're going to news hour itself. I am, and this was pretty much your parting shot. But then again, we were ordered to do this one, so you probably it may not be the idea you wanted. I don't know. Were, were you happy with the idea?
2: Uh, we were ordered to do something on Trump 100 days. So the the struggle was how to do anything that didn't ape uh, our American cousins. Uh, output on all the sort of five thirty eights and the uh, Pod Save Americas, who are all doing Trump one hundred days meticulously from the inside out, as it were. So we thought we would do a global uh, look and have a look at his foreign policy, which is more our uh, sort of uh, ouvre. Yeah,
1: guess. very, very BBC World Service. Very, so, so
2: very World Service. So
1: it was uh, Trump's first one hundred days in foreign policy. That's the topic, and you got put together a very strong panel, which is sort of globally representative.
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. We didn't get Africa, we didn't get Latin America, but apart from that... Yeah, well,
2: the truth is, I mean, he hasn't really done anything in Africa other than look to uh, slash aid budgets and merge uh, USAID and the State Department. Um, And, you know, seemingly the Trump administration hasn't really gotten around to to being interested in that part of the world.
1: Okay. well, look, thank you very much for... Your very diligent work over the last eighteen months. Lots of uh, very good ideas for programs. Lots of difficulty getting people. And you know, it's not, it, it, it just give some insight. Actually, it it is quite challenging, isn't it? I mean, on a Monday morning, to get an idea in place and then a strong panel ready for Thursday when we record.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the the, the week tends to be Monday idea. Tuesday, the panel's fixed. Wednesday, you complain about the makeup of the panel, so <laughs> yeah. I've got to drop at least one or two of them, rejig things, yeah. uh, as the President Trump likes to do. He likes to jigger things. I hope that it? helps. Uh, yeah, it really helps. It, uh, so, so, no, it's been good. It's mostly been uh, a fine time, and we've travelled all over the place with it, so... Uh, no, it's been uh, it's been great and I will carry on listening and uh, and downloading and uh, hopefully the programme will continue to improve.
1: Good luck on News Hour and uh, let's get into this one now. This is what President Trump told a reporter from Time magazine. I can't be doing so badly because I'm the president and you're not. With Global Focus, as we've heard, we're going to look at the uh, foreign policy side of the administration's record and asked about his campaign pledges about the first 100 days. The president said... He thought it was an artificial barrier, rather meaningless. But someone, yeah, somebody put out the concept of a 100-day plan. That somebody was, in fact, Mr Trump himself, who went down to Gettysburg, where Abe Lincoln made his most famous speech, and Mr Trump presented what he called a 100-day plan to make America great again. Some of it was about swamp draining. For example, on day one, he would propose a constitutional amendment to impose term limits on Congress. But there were also specific foreign policy pledges. And here's what he said at Gettysburg. First, renegotiate NAFTA or withdraw. Second, withdraw from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Three, label China a currency manipulator. Four, identify all foreign trading abuses. Five, cancel billions in payments to the UN climate change programme. And also suspend immigration from terror-prone regions. So how much of that has he done? What else has he done? Uh, We're joined by a very strong panel today. We've got former... Polish Foreign Minister Radek Sikorski speaking from Poland. We've got Beirut-based journalist Rami Khoury, Russian writer Maria Lipman and Michael Oslin of the American Enterprise Institute, the author of The End of the Asian Century. And I'm just going to ask you all, first of all, for a general assessment of his foreign policy in the first 100 days. Radek Sikorski, can you kick us off?
3: I think he's learning very quickly, that the world is far more complicated uh, than it looked like to a property developer in New York. He has made some mistakes, most presidents do, but I think he's generally repaired some of the damage that was done during the election campaign. And fortunately, he has dropped some of the positions that we feared might be for real.
1: So I spoke to you, it must have been, I think, election day, and you were really worried.
3: Because what he was saying was worrying and uh, he has now withdrawn from regarding NATO as obsolete, from regarding Mr Putin as the best friend of the United States, from wanting to wreck
4: NAFTA and so
3: on.
1: Okay, Michael Oslin, your general assessment.
4: Well, I agree with Rodick that the president is learning. I think, though, there was always much more nuance in what he said, but what gathered the headlines and what everyone wanted to focus on was the the dramatic statements and, and things that people never expected U.S. Uh, candidates or U.S. presidents to say. The reality is there's probably more continuity than one would think, but this is clearly an administration, as all administrations do, learning on the go and dealing not only with what it wants to do, but with the crises that it faces. Maria Lippmann.
0: Well, uh, it is hard to disagree that he looks a bit more normal if this word is even applicable to uh, Donald Trump. And uh, I think what Donald Trump said about health care reform in the United States, who knew it would be so complicated, can be applied to his foreign policy as well. He is discovering for himself just how complicated the world is and how unexpected it can get. For instance, he needed to respond to a chemical weapons attack in Syria. Who knew it would be so complicated?
1: And finally, Rami Khouri, what do you think? What's your As you look at it all from Beirut? Globally,
5: I think, and within the U.S. both, he's uh, still in a semi-campaign mode while he's also learning to become an incumbent president. So he is making changes, he's adapting, he's learning that uh, you need to have some kind of consensus in congress so all of these realities and he's also learning about the role of the courts in the united states the role of public demonstrations the role of the media this this is a crash course in the presidency which he's uh, he's going through and he's making some adjustments main thing that i would comment on is in the middle east which i follow most closely he has continued rather dramatically the policy of relying mostly on military force or at least bombast and rhetoric that is linked to military force uh, all across the region and so there's been not only no change there but there's been an acceleration of the use of military force in some areas and he's learning about the difference between uh, personality and policy where he might get along with somebody he feels happy with somebody eating chocolate cake uh, but he also learns about what making national policy and the real national interest is so these are all complexities that all go together to make up the man and the presidency, both of which are evolving.
1: Okay. well, we will discuss uh, these specific areas and regions as we go through. And we're going to start with Russia because it did take such a prominent part of the campaign. Let's just hear what he said, first of all, on the campaign trail during one of the debates.
6: If Putin likes Donald Trump, I consider that an asset, not a liability, because we have a horrible relationship with Russia. Russia can help us fight ISIS, which, by the way, is number one tricky. If you look, this administration created ISIS by leaving at the wrong time. The void was created. ISIS was formed. If Putin likes Donald Trump, guess what, folks? That's called an asset, not a liability. Now, I don't know that I'm going to get along with Vladimir Putin. I hope I do. But there's a good chance I won't. And if I don't, do you honestly believe that Hillary would be tougher on Putin than me. Does anybody in this room really believe that? Give me a break.
1: And here he is as president.
6: Frankly, Putin is backing a person that's truly an evil person. And I think it's very bad for Russia. I think it's very bad for mankind. It's very bad for this world. But when you drop gas or bombs or barrel bombs, they have these massive barrels with dynamite and they drop them right in the middle of a group of people. This is an animal.
1: So, Radek Sikorsky, has the anti-Russian American establishment tamed Donald Trump on Russia?
3: I don't think the American establishment is anti-Russian. The American establishment has for years tried to make Russia a constructive Member of, uh, of the concert of, of, of powers. It's just that Russia does things like invading places and uh, sustaining uh, dictators that American presidents and the American establishment cannot fail to notice. And so President Trump is learning the facts. He started from an assumption that through his personality, he might be able to bring uh, President Putin round. Well, Russia's support for Iran, for Hezbollah, for Assad has uh, a strategic rationale that we we can disagree with, but which makes sense if you're the kind of country that Russia is. And uh, President Trump is only now appreciating something that he was ignorant of as as a candidate.
1: Maria Lippmann, do you see it that way or do you think there has been really a concerted effort to get Trump back on track regarding Russia into a traditional policy?
0: It is, uh, it is fair to say that the American establishment is anti-Russian now. And I think Russia and uh, Russian hacking and uh, an area of accusations have been used as a battering ram against Donald Trump. Uh, the establishment was very unhappy seeing him elected. So that pressure probably played a role. But most recently, of course, it was the chemical weapons attack in Syria and the American response and uh, what looks like slipping into yet another fallout with Russia, even worse than before. This being said, I think that their attempts are ongoing uh, for some kind of a normalization or at least an attempt at that. This
4: is uh, yeah. Michael in Washington. Sure. Just a, to, just a, you know, a brief perspective from the uh, from sitting here in D.C., I think the truth is, is that the American establishment, the foreign policy establish- establishment has not thought about Russia for 25 years. Until the invasion of Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea, and so what you have is a scramble to reinsert Russia into American strategic thinking on the one hand, you have old cold warriors who've you know largely been dormant for the past twenty five years suddenly coming back talking about what Russia is and what it wants to do and on the other hand, you have a whole generation that has grown up without thinking about Russia without thinking about Russia in relation to the Middle East or in relation to asia and so I think there 's actually a great confusion here, and it centers their For solely on the personality of Putin as opposed to understanding the the broad variety of interests uh, that Russia has and the broad variety of challenges that it poses.
1: Okay, but Michael, let me put this to you because there was this amazing comment that Trump made in the campaign when he was asked by a German reporter whether he would recognize Crimea as Russian and lift sanctions. And he said, yes, we'll look at that. I mean, that was quite a statement. And now he's saying Crimea was taken by Russia during the Obama administration and the sanctions are back on. But what was going on in the campaign that that substantial question he he gave quite a clear answer to?
4: Well, again, I I think during the campaign, you had a candidate who did not have the support of the GOP, the Republican establishment, foreign policy or otherwise, did not have a a deep bench of foreign policy advisors. Uh, Having worked on other campaigns, I can tell you, usually you have dozens of people writing hundreds of position papers that are funneled up to the candidate. Uh, And so it it was essentially what Donald Trump thought at the moment.
3: I think there was mm. also a wink and nod towards Russia and an actual statement saying, yeah, go ahead, uh, hack the Democrats. Help yes, well, it came com- just before that statement on the campaign. campaign. And, and the yeah. quid pro quo was that I won't criticise you for the things that Hillary Clinton was criticising you for.
1: Let, let's um, just think a bit about Europe as well as Russia. And I'm just going to do the quotes now on NATO. It's quite well known where he's been and where he's gone to on this. But first of all, candidate Trump.
6: I understand this stuff. I mean, I really do understand this stuff. NATO is obsolete. Now, that doesn't mean it can't be rejiggered and it can't be fixed and made good. You have countries in NATO, I think it's 28 countries, you have countries in NATO that are getting a free ride, and it's unfair. It's very unfair. The United States cannot afford to be the policeman of the world anymore, folks. We have to rebuild our own country. We have to stop with this stuff. It's unfair to our taxpayers and to our people.
1: And uh, just after his meeting as president with the NATO Secretary-General?
6: The Secretary-General and I had a productive discussion about what more NATO can do in the fight against terrorism. I complained about that a long time ago and they made a change. And now they do fight terrorism. I said it was obsolete. It's no longer obsolete.
1: Michael Osman, I mean it's obviously rather absurd to say that he's he's turned around NATO policy in the last you know, hundred days. But he he's adjusted his position.
4: First of all, his position was not all that different from President Obama who also uh, warned, as his administration did, that NATO had to pay more and warned about the hollowing out of NATO's military capabilities. Again, I think it, it is the rhetoric that catches people's attention, but if you go deeper into what uh, both as a candidate and as a president he was saying, I don't think it's actually that radical. And, and, and further, uh, it's actually a very good thing then that he has come around to uh, not only recognize and, and publicly acknowledge but embrace I mean, the on, of NATO. President
1: Obama would never have said NATO's obsolete.
4: No, as, as I said, it, it is the rhetoric. But the Obama administration was deeply concerned and talked repeatedly about the fact that most NATO members, save for three, were not paying their 2% of uh, GDP into defense budgets, that the capabilities of NATO, uh, the military capabilities, were being hollowed out. It was the very same concerns that candidate Trump was talking about. You know, and without getting into Bill Clinton level of parsing, we have to understand what obsolete means. Does obsolete mean that you junk it because it has no role? to play? Or does obsolete mean that the role for which it was originally designed has evolved and changed over the decades, as I would say happens with any alliance? And therefore, you have to think about it in new ways. You now have a president who seems to believe that there is utility and value to this alliance. That's a good thing. Uh, but he's saying that in part because he's seeing more activity on the part of the European partners.
3: Radek Sikorsky. I think the problem is deeper because on spending, uh, candidate Trump and President Trump are clearly right. There are some countries, including some frontline states of nature on the eastern flank, that do not fulfill a recommendation that's decades old. Um, But I think the deeper problem is that President Trump is an American nationalist and is only now learning that America is, in fact, more than just a nation state, that it's a leader of the free world and a, a leader of a Western community of nations, and that, in fact, alliances like NATO are force multipliers for the United States. I think that's a new concept for him. Maria Lemon?
0: Yeah, uh, what uh, President Obama, and actually almost no president would do, is say uh, it's not obsolete after saying it was obsolete only uh, in a matter of just a few months. I think that's pretty bizarre in itself. However, talking about uh, whether or not America is the policeman of the world and can or cannot afford it, I think we should look at the blueprint for President Trump's budget and what there is, is a desire, a plan to increase military spending. So is this or is this not being a policeman of the world and at the same time cutting down the expenditures on USAID and this is uh, an interesting remark on what Radek Sikorsky just said leader of the free world being a leader of the free world implied in previous times the activity of USAID and promoting democracy and human rights whether or not uh, we agree that this was a good idea so this I think is also worth mentioning
1: Mikuri, when you look at it at the Middle East, it's all rather different, isn't it? Because leader of the free world, you know, for a country that backed Mubarak and all these other authoritarian regimes over the years doesn't really ring true. And where do you put Trump in relation to to that US tradition?
5: Well, I think the reality is that over the last uh, 25, 30 years, you've had two major American thrusts of policy overseas, at least rhetorically, if not in fact. One was fighting terrorism, the other was promoting democracy. Both have been abject failures. The terrorist groups like Qaeda, ISIS, and others like them are the biggest growing political sector in in the Middle East and South Asia, and they're still expanding, even though ISIS is getting pushed back now, as it should be. And the promoting democracy uh, talk has proved to be insincere and not serious, and now you've got very close relations between the U.S. and Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Turkey and, and all these Autocratic states and and others, of course. So, what Trump was saying in the campaign about NATO, about the UN, about trade accords, about uh, foreign aid, all of these things that had to do vaguely with the world, which very few of his citizen constituents actually knew anything about or understood, were rhetorical devices to tap into a populist appeal, and they worked, and he got elected, and now he's learning that the world is more complex and he's making the necessary adjustments. But as others have said, he's spending a lot on military, he's expanding the military, he's relying on military, Military generals, the same people who were utterly f- failures in Afghanistan and fighting the global war on terror are now uh, leading the Defense Department and the White House Security Council and all these agencies. So there's a big problem with the continuity of a military first strategy that has uh, failed miserably. And we're going to have to see what kind of reaction comes up from within the American body politic, and that remains to be seen.
1: Rami, I'm wondering whether people in the Middle East see him as a strong leader of the Western world or whether he is helping change perceptions of the West or has that been happening for some time? How how does that work? Well, what you have is a split in the Middle East
5: between, uh, it's not an ideological split as you have within the American population for political and ideological reasons. It's a split between leaders and led. So I would say that most leaders in the Arab countries and other Middle Eastern countries like Turkey and others, uh, they like uh, Trump and they want to get very close to him. And they're doing that already. They think they can benefit from him. He can help them stay in power and uh, gain military hardware and other things. While the majority of ordinary people people, I think, are troubled by what they hear and what they see, let alone the travel ban and things like that, but uh, just the uh, renewed focus on militarism and bombing. So I think there's a split in the Middle East that's among the governed and the governing, uh, and it doesn't augur well for the region because it's increasing the internal tensions within the Middle East, and we don't know where that's
4: going to lead, but it's not going to lead to anything happy.
1: Michael Oslin, how do you respond to that?
4: Well, I think that every president has a a shakedown period where they have to come up with strategy. And as it was mentioned earlier, what is particularly difficult for this administration is that they don't have – the vast majority of their uh, working positions filled, and so you you have a, a tight circle at the top that is swinging back and forth in some ways between the initial desires to carry out what was promised and and lauded on the campaign trail and then as we've talked about the the difficulties of actual governing, but you know with all respect to some of the the positions that have been uh, stated here, the idea that no other president than Donald Trump has flip flopped on issues is, is is not true at all. We were six years into the Obama administration six years of on-the-job training when President Obama said there's a red line in Syria and then after that red line was crossed said, I didn't say there was a red line in Syria. Uh, you know, the idea that suddenly Donald Trump has has some sort of inconstancy that is unbefitting the position uh, really, I think, just misunderstands well, no, I mean, all presidents. That's a very
1: disingenuous point because President Obama took Our... absolutely massive punishment for that but, U-turn. Of, of, of course he did and, and he and so it's quite appropriate for journalists to offer Donald Trump exactly the same sort of uh, perspective, isn't it? No,
4: no, no, that's, that's you're, you're Oh, and that's exactly my point. It's not disingenuous at all. He should have gotten massive opprobrium for it, and he did. But so should Trump us now, for his, yeah. yeah but no, no, but if I'm saying for us now to retrospectively say that, well, what President Obama never would have said is X, then Y, of course, he did exactly that, and and all presidents have done that. So uh, I think the bigger issue, the thing that we really should be focusing on, uh, is what is your strategy? It is fine if you want to launch some missiles against Syria uh, to make clear that you know nation states cannot, with impunity, use weapons of mass destruction against civilians. But what is the larger strategy? And I think that's going to stretch uh, beyond the Middle East. It's going to stretch into Europe, and it's going to stretch into the region we haven't talked about yet, which is Asia, where there are major challenges to U.S. policy. Yep,
1: we're going to talk about Middle East and Asia in the second half. I'm just going to ask one quick question before we end the first half, because we're not doing Latin America as a whole section. So very quick answers from you. Will the wall get built? This is a foreign policy question. And will, it, will Mexico
0: pay for it? Uh, Maria Lippmann. Well, I'm sure Mexico will not pay for it. Um, as for the wall, um, well, I think uh, it shouldn't be either or, um, as uh, as it always is the case in policies. Uh, it may be uh, lots of statements about building it. It may be about plans. I don't think an actual wall will be built anytime soon. And uh, 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 um, definitely Mexico is not paying for it.
3: Radek Sikorsky. Well, so far as I know, most of the wall is built already. There' are just some gaps to be filled, uh, which is uh, pretty useless because um, according to recent data, the uh, balance of migration between Mexico and the United States uh, is actually that Mexicans are returning home because Mexico has become a consumer society thanks to the advantages of free trade under NAFTA. Um so uh, it's a bad idea which whose uh, whose whose who's time has not come
1: Before I go to Michael in Washington Rami Khoury do you have a view from Beirut on the, the wall well, only that, you know, Trump is a, a
5: master politician who has succeeded in an amazing way that very few people expected, and um, and you're going to see that success, I think, in the wall. What's going to happen, I believe, is there's going to be a wall that it's actually being built right now, but it's a wall of rhetoric rather than a war of concrete and metal. Uh, it's a virtual wall, and it's going to be uh, reaching a point within the next six, nine months where Trump is going to say, look, we succeeded. We built the wall. The Mexicans are not coming as much there's no longer um, as many uh, people coming illegally they've increased the patrols on the border he'll be able to say maybe in a year that look we've got made a big change we no longer need a full physical wall everywhere but the wall that I promise you has been built and and he will come up with some hocus-pocus political process that will make it look like the Mexican paid it through some kind of renegotiated trade agreement so this is what politicians do we, we, you know we have to judge him as a politician he's not a university professor or a journalist or 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 an industrialist. He's a politician, and politicians do this all the time. They say things, and they don't actually physically do them or they don't fully mean them, but they're designed to win elections, and he has been a
4: master at that.
1: Quick word on the wall, Michael Oslin.
4: Uh, well, for the most part, I agree with Romney. Uh, I think that's mm. the, the position that he'll take. I'm not sure if you you know you call it hocus pocus or not, uh, but but again, you know, when we're talking about the managerial elite, I, I don't think there's a lot of difference between how politicians act, how corporate CEOs act, and quite frankly, having been one, how professors act.
1: You're listening to News Hour Extra from the BBC World Service with Owen Bennett-Jones. And this week, we're looking at President Trump's foreign policy 100 days in. And we're joined by former Polish Foreign Minister Radek Sikorsky, uh, Beirut-based journalist Rami Khoury, Russian writer Maria Lipman, and Michael Oslin of the American Enterprise Institute. So we did talk a bit about the... Middle East uh, in the first half of the programme. But let's just deal specifically with Israel now. And Rami Khoury, I'll ask you to to comment on this. Here is President Trump in November 2016. We will move the American embassy to the
6: eternal capital of the Jewish people, Jerusalem.
1: Now, it didn't happen yet. Uh, Why not, Rami Khoury? Because it's a political
5: pledge he made in a campaign... It resonates with many people in the U.S., but not everybody. The realities of making the move, as the last four or five American presidents have learned on the job, brings up new problems, all kinds of serious problems across the Arab and the Islamic world. Not to mention with international law. So I think this is again what we would expect when uh, the campaign morphs into incumbency. Uh, some of these things get left on the behind, and 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 he's basically saying we're studying it, uh, we're looking into it, and then probably it's not going to get done. Tell me more about the
1: problems. Why is it so difficult to do? What will he have been advised?
5: Well, probably every single Arab leader and and many of his uh, honest uh, advisers uh, who are aware of the realities would tell him that this is going to inflame political passions across the region and might force some countries to take some uh not punitive measures against the u.s because most countries are reliant on the u.s but the symbolic uh, measures to show their discontent because this resonates deeply with people all over the arab and islamic world the leaders in the arab countries are, are, have don't particularly mind where the capital is because they they just want to stay in power but the ordinary people the public opinion in the arab world which is now clearly proven proven by many, many polls over the years. Uh, they care deeply about Palestine, Israel, and Jerusalem. And for all Muslims, and even some Christians as well, a lot of people would react very angrily to this. The Arab-Israeli conflict has been and remains the most destabilizing, radicalizing force in the entire Middle East, and he eventually will learn that.
1: You're Right, and Radek Sikorsky, can you see any movement on the Middle East peace process given the way he's handled
3: it so far? I don't see that there is a Middle East peace process. But uh, look, we've had a Polish president who publicly recognized Jerusalem as uh, as the capital of Israel and nothing happened. We haven't moved our embassy uh, because uh, because of the concerns that that have been mentioned. And we even have a saying that one speech by the president ruins six months of uh, careful diplomacy. Uh, What I think President Trump needs to do is to make peace with his own diplomatic establishment. There are a lot of knowledgeable people in it who would tell him in advance what the uh, complexities are so that he doesn't have to flip-flop. And given that Some of these people protested about when he was candidate on the basis of pronouncements that he has now reversed himself on. I think that's a basis for for making up. He has now moderated his his pronouncements, at least. I think probably his views as well. And so I think uh, America needs all the experts and diplomats that it has.
1: Maria Lippmann, can you talk us through Syria? Because there was this idea that he would concentrate on the battle against Islamic State. And if that meant making up with Assad, so be it. And yet now he's bombed Assad-related targets. I mean, that is a massive switch in policy and seems to go to the heart of one of the things he really believed in the campaign and, you know, was very strong on. Can you make sense of that for us?
0: This is indeed a massive, uh, a massive shift, uh, and also uh, uh, an indication that there is disagreement within the team. Nikki Haley and Tillerson, around the same time, making opposite statements as regards Assad and whether he should stay or go. Whether the American goal, as Nikki Haley said, was to uh, uh, get rid of him or whether he was not a problem. And then came the chemical weapons attack. Trump responded by. Uh, dealing airstrikes, leaving everyone guess, whether it was a one-off or the beginning of a new American military involvement in Syria. It seems like one-off is more likely, but this has uh, changed the scene around Syria. In large part, uh, this changed the relations with Russia. Uh, And this left Russia with just Iran and Hezbollah because even Turkey is no longer a Russian ally in Syria. This, too, is a major change. So, Michael Oslin, I mean, before this airstrike, you might
1: have thought that he was thinking, you know, he's backing Sisi in Egypt and in Assad, in a way, is is the same sort of place. He's an authoritarian leader who is keeping violent jihadists at bay and that one way or another he would – it would be consistent – to move towards Assad. And yet all that seems unraveled now.
4: Well, again, I, th- I think this is part of the problem of, of having cross-cutting currents within the administration and not a, uh, a full policy. For American presidents who haven't had to think, for example, uh, about how to deal with Russia in the Middle East for four decades, it adds one more level uh, of complexity. And where I think the president found his comfort zone was actually in stepping back and saying, what, what are the, the, the baselines for... American action, and that would be, again, going against basically the advice of many in the GOP foreign policy establishment to establish air zones or or do other types of, of aid. Uh, instead, it's taking that sort of deus ex machina view of what would the United States do to uphold certain norms of order, and that's where the chemical strike comes in, so that the president, who had always said, I think, that he reserved to himself the right to use force in, in situations where he felt it was in U.S. interest, followed it up very quickly by stating, number one, as we told you, we would we will be unpredictable. And so that means every party on the ground in Syria now has to wonder when or if the United States might get involved. But secondly, to those in the United States who do not support greater U.S. involvement there, and that is undoubtedly a majority of the population, he followed up, and as did his lieutenants, by saying, this strike does not mean that we are suddenly going to go full into Syria. So what I think they're trying to do is build the buffer zone for themselves, that space of maneuver where they can decide how in much more discreet ways to get involved if they feel they need to.
1: Radek Sikorsky, you've exercised, you know, authority in foreign policy. Donald Trump said he wanted to be more unpredictable and he thought that could help the US assert itself on the global stage. And he's doing that in that Syrian strike and in relation to North Korea. They're wondering, what's he going to do? Does it
3: help him? actually. Is he right that this
1: unpredictability enhances American power? Yes,
3: I think it does. Remember, American influence was enhanced by the fact that the leaders of the Soviet Union in the 1980s were terrified of what the cowboy Ronald Reagan might do. then the Russians turned the table on us and we were concerned about what uh, President Putin might do where he might apply uh, military power or where he might hack the political process and so on. And so keeping your opponents and your rivals off balance by making them guess what your next move might be is, I think, a pretty useful for the United States change from the ultra-rational President Obama, who was perhaps too predictable.
1: Let's move on to China and North Korea. This is Donald Trump on the campaign trail on China
6: when the Chinese traders come in and they come in 20 at a time and they want to make great trade deals and they make the best trade deals and not anymore when I'm there we turn it around folks we turn it around we have a 500 billion dollar deficit trade deficit with China and we have the cards don't forget we're like the piggy bank that's being robbed we have the cards we have a lot of power with China When China doesn't want to fix the problem in North Korea, we say, sorry, folks, you got to fix the problem because we can't continue to allow China to rape our country. And that's what they're doing. It's the greatest theft
1: in the history of the world. And this is Donald Trump in power. President Xi
6: wants to do the right thing. We had a very good bonding. I think we had a very good chemistry together. I think he wants to help us with North Korea. We talk trade. We talk a lot of things. And I said, the way you're going to make a good trade deal is to help us with North Korea. Otherwise, we're just going to go it alone. That'll be all right, too.
1: Now, let's uh, let's go to Maria Lippmann on this. You're in middle America in in Indiana, I think, aren't you, where a lot of those Chinese goods are consumed. I guess the acid test on this is in four
0: years, will the, that massive trade deficit have been changed? Will it? In as much as we can judge by the first 100 days, and as we've been talking, there have been several major shifts already. At least at this point in time, it looks like the relations with China are on the rise, not on decline. And this is a very stark contrast with the relations uh, with Russia. Uh, It was uh, uh, the Chinese leader with whom uh, Donald Trump had his chocolate cake. He hasn't seen his Russian colleague yet. It's not clear whether he will see, see him. Uh, it is very important to remember that the trade uh, with China is huge. The trade with Russia is tiny. And this is one of those constraints that actually uh, do not allow President Trump to go too far in his policies from something that is more conventional in what uh, his predecessors did.
3: Radek Sikorsky. Managing one's own relative decline, relative, and somebody else's relative ascendancy is one of the hardest things in the world. Thucydides famously said that what started the Peloponnesian War was the rising power of Athens and the fear that it inspired in Sparta. And the last thing that the, that the world needs is either a trade or an actual war between America and, and China. Of course, there are issues such as, for example, the huge Chinese bases in the in the South China Sea. America also needs an export promotion policy, but it should have an intelligent one. One of the best ideas I've read about at the American Enterprise Institute would be for the United States to adopt a European-style value-added tax which has an effect of promoting exports, but without causing trade wars.
1: Uh, Right. That sounds a very complex uh, suggestion, but we do have it in Europe, of course. But uh, Michael Oslin at the American Enterprise Institute, how how do you see this relationship with China? It did seem that uh, President Trump really was focusing on this trade deficit, on the jobs going out of America. Can he actually, does he have the power to turn that around?
4: China has enough problems of its own, uh, I think right now, uh, with rising wages, uh, lack of competitiveness, a massive debt problem that it really does not want to see any type of disruption in, in u s trade ties and I think that Beijing has has made that calculation, so what we 're hearing in Washington is a lot of talk that the Chinese may decide to do really what the Japanese did back in the 1990s, which was basically self imposed uh, limitations on uh, Chinese exports in certain sectors in the United States economy oh, and I, I want to step back and make a, a larger point about the president's uh, Asia policy and, and in fact all of the foreign policy which is I think it's always useful at least for me to remember that this is a negotiator. We've been uh, circling over and over on this question of flip-flopping, and does he know what he's saying? Does he mean what he says? This is someone who always starts with a maximalist position for negotiating. Uh, He does not ever want to go into any type of negotiation where he doesn't have the upper hand. And I think you've seen that played over and over, at least in his own mind, his own approach, whether that actually gives him the advantage he wants is a different issue. Uh, And I think he did the same thing with China. What What he stated repeatedly was, why should I cooperate on security issues if they won't cooperate on trade issues and vice versa? And so most recently in terms of currency manipulation, when he was asked, why are you not declaring them a currency manipulator? Which, by the way, no other president has has done after threatening to do. But he stated, why would I declare them a currency manipulator when they're helping me on North Korea? So again, it is a holistic approach that he sees that these things are integrated and have to be thought about together.
1: Since you've broadened it out, going to, Rami Khoury, I wonder if you could comment on this in relation to Iran, but it also really applies to North Korea. You know, In both places, there's this challenge. You know, the, the president is saying he's not happy with the nuclear deal, not happy with Iran's role in the region, he's not happy with uh, North Korea's nuclear uh, arsenal. And yet, the only way out of it, you would think, is for military conflict at the end. I mean, given that diplomacy has failed over, over the years, uh, he's trying a diplomatic route, but if it fails... It has to go military, right? And presumably he, he may not want to do that, in which case his bluff has called. Is, is that how you see it in Iran? Is he climbing up a tree that it's going to be difficult to get down from?
5: I, not yet. What Trump and the Chinese have in common is they love to make deals and do business. And this, there's an extraordinary opportunity to renegotiate a relationship between China and the U.S. that is enormously beneficial for both countries and could be beneficial for the whole world if it promotes trade and equitable trade and other things like that. So uh, when you get to issues um, like uh, Iran, I think he's doing the same thing. He's saying things that are provocative, and uh, and and they'll, you know, we're going to hear soon that the military option is not off the table it's always on the table we're hearing it now about Korea and 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 this is something the American presidents say all the time I wouldn't worry too much about that I don't think there's going to be a war either in Korea or uh, on Iran but I think there has to be a, a recognition of the success of the nuclear agreement because it had two sides to it both sides benefited so um, probably you know level uh, more level-headed people will prevail and uh, they will find a way to continue making um, uh, dynamic rhetoric and uh, threats and whatever, uh, but that'll lead to some kind of discussion. The last one I'd make is China is tiptoeing into the Middle East now in a way that we haven't seen for some years. They're making noises and certain gestures about they might want to be involved in Arab-Israeli issues, they might want to be involved in, in more bilateral relations. Before, they just wanted to come and mine and you know buy minerals and stuff like that and sell consumer goods. And Now there's a greater sense that China the weather Russia and the United States, uh, three big powers, and then Europe in its own way. Uh, these are four big blocks, or big countries, or powers, and uh, each of them has a, a huge uh, economic role, and therefore will have to take on a commensurate political uh, role as well. And the Chinese are doing this partly in uh, patrolling some of the sea lanes to stop piracy. And I think we're going to see China slowly emerging uh, as a more rounded power, uh, but not a global power militarily like the United. States or the Russians to some, uh, some extent are. So I wouldn't be worried about uh, these issues. I think this is a, a moving in the right direction and Iran, I think, is going to f- uh, fall into that same pattern.
1: Okay, so I'm going to put this to Radek and then Maria, you can come in afterwards. Do you, do you, do you share Rami Khouri's you know, view that on Iran and on North Korea, the ramping up of tension is not going to lead to, to any military conflict?
3: I find North Korea much more explosive than Iran. In Iran, as long as the uh, agreement holds, there will not be a nuclear weapon for 10 years, probably more. So we can now refocus on other nefarious things that the Ayatollahs are doing, like the export of terrorism or upsetting the balance of power in the Middle East. North Korea already, we have to assume, has nuclear weapons and is extending the range of uh, the capacity to deliver them and can probably already hit important American allies. And that's why that situation, I think, is much less predictable. Maria
0: Lippmann? Well, maximizing the, uh, our bargaining position is a good approach uh, in business, but not always in politics. And this transactional approach may work with China, and I hope it will. It may uh, work with Iran. It certainly does not with North Korea. In politics, unlike business, not everything is for sale, and North Korea is just one such example. I hope there will be no uh, actual war, but there certainly will be a lot of tension, and the situation will remain dangerous in key policymakers in various parts of the world quite busy and quite concerned. Just finally, we're going
1: to ask you all about President Trump's foreign policy team. And uh, we've, we've just done an interview with Matthew Kronig. Now, he's just written a big article on Trump's foreign policy record for Foreign Affairs magazine. He spoke to me a few moments ago, just before we recorded this, from Chicago Airport.
7: Well, on the campaign trail, Trump promised that he would build national security team from the best and the brightest. And I think he's followed through on that promise. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, former CEO of ExxonMobil, very capable. Uh, Secretary of Defence Mattis, General H.R. McMaster as National Security Advisor, among the most influential military officers of their generation, uh, capable of farsighted strategic thinking. So I think he's built a- an excellent team, as he promised.
1: It's quite striking on uh, Secretary of Defence James Mattis. He is very hostile to Iran, isn't he?
7: Well, I think that's going too far. I actually worked with General Mattis when I was on the Iran desk in DOD, and he was the deputy commander of CENTCOM. So I think he understands the importance of uh, military force and international politics. Uh, But I don't think he's hostile to Iran. I think he wants Iran to stop their destabilizing activities in the region, curtail their missile program in case they decide to break out of this nuclear deal.
1: The general take, I guess, is that, you know, Trump is is fairly erratic on a lot of these things. He changes his position a lot. And people think this team is keeping him steady. Do you accept that analysis?
7: Trump is an unusual president. He's our first president without a background in either the military or a previous political office. So I think he has broad ideas about what he would like to do in foreign policy, America first. I think for the most part, he's not in the details. He sets the broad strategic uh, vision, but uh, from what I'm what I'm told, he is is involved.
1: And of the people that are yeah close around him now, Tillerson, McMaster, Mattis, you've mentioned. Uh, there's Pompeo at the CIA. Which one has got the the most influence on him? Do you think?
7: Well, McMaster is, is at the White House. Uh, he's the National Security Advisor. He's responsible for being the honest broker, taking the various ideas from the cabinet agencies and teeing up options for, for decision. Uh, so I think uh, proximity is power to some degrees. Uh, you know, Tillerson uh, approaches things, I think, more from the global business point of view, having worked at, at ExxonMobil. So unclear, really, what his views are on some of these key foreign policy issues. Although uh, his statements so far seem to reflect Belief in a traditional role for the United States and in international politics, providing security in Europe and Asia, underpinning the the global economy, playing this important stabilizing role.
1: That was uh, Matthew Chronic, and just to uh, bring in Michael Oslin on this, you've mentioned that you think you know there is a need for him to make more lower level appointments. How long will that take? Where are the biggest gaps?
4: Well, it's not just lower level. We don't have deputies yet. A few have been uh, suggested for nominations. The the way the system works, we go from secretaries to the deputy secretaries to undersecretaries, and then the assistant secretaries who have the specific area responsibilities or functional responsibilities. And we have none of those. Uh, We also don't have a full National Security Council. Uh, Like Matt Koenig, I know a lot of these people, uh, including General McMaster, the National Security Advisor. uh, And it is true that, that the president has put together overall a very impressive top-level team. What we need to do, what they need to do, is get in uh, so many of the others who have to, to do the, the running of the day-to-day work. And they've they've started appointing some. The other thing to look for that will be coming out, I think, around the end of the year, I'm not exactly sure, are the capstone documents that the, that the government has to, that the administration has to provide. And that will answer a lot of the questions we've talked about today. It starts with the national security strategy, then it goes to the national defense strategy, and the national military strategy, and one for the state to Department. Once those come out, those really give you an indication of, of the real priorities that the administration sees. Uh, and then you begin to ask questions about how they will fulfill those.
1: Why have the appointments been so slow? Well, again,
4: I think this goes back to the campaign. What, what you find in all other campaigns is that by the time the nominees are in the general election, uh, around, let's say, October or so, uh, they've put together transition teams. Uh, and those transition teams have essentially filled the government. They, they have asked everyone who's been involved or everyone that they want to be involved if they'll take a particular position so that when they know that they've been elected, they can begin the process of vetting those people, making sure that they can serve, and then, if necessary, putting those nominations before the Senate. Now, this was not the approach of the Trump administration. They had a blank slate. And so you're talking about hundreds, if not thousands, actually, of of what we could call patronage positions uh, that need to be filled. But the other issue, uh, and I was one of these uh, who signed letters that were, again, Against, uh, President Trump. I signed one that came out in the primaries back in March. That those people, and they they number in well over hundred people on the Republican side, have have been uh, not asked to join this administration. That they've kept it really as a uh, as a mark of those who were not supportive, and so they've they've cut themselves off from a lot of expertise. Gosh, are you regretting it? No, I think that during the, the I, I you know, you put your name to something and you stand by it. I, I don't regret the fact that I supported other nominees during the primary process. Uh, I was not one who took a public stance during the general, however, uh, the general election. And I do think that both sides need to make peace. I think the administration needs to make peace with those who thought there were other choices uh, that they would have preferred. And I think that those uh, who did not support the president need to stop the, what has become now called the never Trump position, even during his presidency, which is to Say that they will never support him. Uh, there's a lot of hard work to do that we've talked about throughout this hour, uh, and quite frankly, we need all hands on deck.
3: Radek Sikorsky, have you come across any of this top team? Uh, yes, I worked with General Masys as uh, Minister of Defence, and I'm a huge fan, a safe pair of hands. Um, but uh, President Trump promised to uh, drain the swamp, to be a scourge of the establishment. Uh, but thank God, he is appointing generals and and some capable businessmen. But he, I agree, he needs to make uh, peace with the professional establishment of Washington because he needs those people. And it's also encouraging that he has cut down to size some of the ideologues that were serving on the National Security Council.
1: I'm just going to ask a, a final question to Rami and uh, to Maria which is where you think we're going to be in four years. I mean, all presidents, it is often said, and I guess it's always true, that they they get really big, difficult things to to deal with, uh, particularly on foreign policy. Um, And we'll see, you know, how President Trump reacts. So Rami Khoury first, and then Maria, in in four years' time, what will his biggest problem have been, and how will he cope? I think
5: the big challenge, uh, and particularly in the Middle East, is to really uh, look at, uh, the policies of the last 30 or 40 years, and ask honestly why they have brought us to this situation we're in today. And it can't be mainly because of Iran being a troublemaker or something else. It's a combination of uh, indigenous autocracy and dictators, the Arab-Israeli conflict 65, 70 years going on, and constant foreign militarism, which is now includes Russian militarism and Turkish militarism and all of these things and American militarism. So I think there needs to be a really honest reappraisal and that will determine where we're gonna be four years down the road. If we just stick with the present policies that the Americans are pursuing, Uh, I think it's going to be a catastrophe for this region. And what you're seeing now in terrorism and refugee flows and broken states is going to get much, much worse.
0: Maria Lippmann? I mean, I would not predict where we're going to be. Uh, uh, There is a growing disorder in the world, uh, what with terrorism, uh, the uncertainty of the European Union, of course, Syria, of course, the Middle East, which is this perennial conflict. And the fact that President Trump, at least today, looks very unpredictable. Uh, And I think there is a difference between Putin being unpredictable because he's weak and this is his way to make up for his weakness and uh, the president of the United States being unpredictable and erratic, whereas uh, the United States is looked at by uh, many uh, in the world as maybe a hope for some kind of stability and some kind of policies that would make the world at least a more stable place. Thank you. Very interesting discussion. Radek Sikorsky,
1: Rami Khouri, uh, Maria Lipman and Michael Oslin. And don't forget to get in touch. Tweet at BBCNH Extra. And don't forget the podcast, NewsHour Extra podcast. One programme every week, an hour on a single topic, uh, where hopefully we can uh, discuss things in a little more detail than we normally manage. But from our excellent panel and from Owen Bennett-Jones here in London, goodbye.